Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. This podcast episode contains some graphic descriptions of murder and sexual assault. There are references to mental illness and to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's the late morning of Sunday the 28th of November 1937 and all over Australia the faithful are in church. Tom Donegan, 35, of Hamilton, a Newcastle suburb, is one of them, attending Catholic Mass. That's despite having been told just at 9.30 that his girlfriend, Dorothy May Everett, who he took to the pictures last night, hasn't been seen since he sent her home on a tram alone half an hour before midnight. Lord have mercy. Amen. With Mass over, Tom intends to go to the police and report Dot's disappearance. But as he steps out of the church, he's met by Newcastle's Detective Sergeant M.T. Emerson. The news is horrific. Dot is dead. Murdered. Just yards from the safety of her bedroom at Broughton School, where she works, worked, as a kitchen maid. Tom and Detective Sergeant Emerson are soon joined by Detective Sergeant William Alford, one of the state's best-known crime fighters. Detective Sergeant Alford wants to know what happened last night. I'm Michael Adams and this is part two of the five-part Forgotten Australian miniseries, The Vampire Murder. I'm releasing all five installments over the next week. But if you'd like to hear the whole story now, all five parts are available to show supporters as a thank you for helping me make this podcast. The Patreon link is in your show notes. And if you're a fan of the show, I'd also love it if you could leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. 
During the late 1920s and early 1930s, Detective Sergeant William Alford regularly made the papers when on the trail of killers, kidnappers and coke kingpins as a star of the Sydney CIB. We've encountered him a few times in previous episodes. Detective Sergeant Alford had been on the scene of the double slaughter of elderly sisters in their Dulwich Hill lolly shop on another terrible Saturday night back in June 1928. That murderer had never been caught. Four years later, in May 1932, Detective Sergeant Alford led a raid that arrested the New Guard extremists who'd beaten Unionist Jock Garden. It was this action, and Detective Sergeant Alford's testimony, that the fascists intended to stage a coup against Premier Jack Lang that turned public opinion against the organisation. But there were also allegations that the bashing of Jock Garden had been a police frame-up orchestrated by an argent provocateur for precisely that outcome. In November 1935, Detective Sergeant Alford had transferred to Newcastle. And now he had his first murder to solve, with Thomas Donegan, his most promising suspect. Tom needed to account for his movements last night. He told them about taking Dot to the pictures, about being tired and her saying she'd get the tram home alone. They'd parted on friendly terms, and they'd planned to see each other next on Monday night. After Dot had gone off on her tram alone, he'd gone to his boarding house in Hamilton, chatted to some of the residents, and then gone to sleep in his room. He hadn't left that room until 8.30 this morning, and he'd still been in the house just over an hour later when Elsie Everett had come around to ask if he knew where her sister was. Detective Sergeant Alford drove Tom back to his place and interviewed his landlady and other boarders. What he said checked out. Tom Donegan had been at home when Dorothy had been murdered. Yet, he didn't need to be the killer to feel the heavy weight of terrible guilt. Dot wouldn't be dead if he'd insisted on seeing her home. That he hadn't done that seemed even more of an error of judgement when Tom told the police what Dot had told him about being followed through the school gates a week or two ago and having to fight off her attacker with an umbrella. Dot had said that this man had been a stranger. Why hadn't she reported this to the police or to the school? Dot hadn't wanted to make a fuss. Detective Sergeant Olford and his colleagues would need to follow up on this. If this stalker had been her murderer, then it was at odds with the police's developing theory that Dot had known her killer. Detective Sergeant Olford told Tom he'd need to come into the Newcastle Police Station that night at 7 o'clock for further questioning. That Sunday, farther up the coast, Dot's parents, who still lived in Taree, were out for the day at Harrington and Diamond Head with some of their other children. They wouldn't be back until the evening and couldn't be contacted. So police notified Dot's uncle, John Davis, who went to the morgue with his other niece, Dot's sister, Elsie. She waited outside while he identified Dot. Detectives interviewed both of them. John Davis accounted for his movements on Saturday and Saturday night. He told of Dot's last visit to his place, which had been on Friday night, and that she'd been upset but hadn't said what about. Dot had wanted to speak to Elsie, but she wasn't around. Elsie told police she'd last seen her sister last Sunday. She also told them what Dot had told her about being accosted recently. But Elsie thought it had been on the zigzag steps in the church park walk, rather than inside the school grounds. Dot had also told Elsie that her attacker was a stranger. At the Broughton School that morning, police interviewed Headmaster Reverend Futrell, 
who told them that he, his wife and their nine-year-old daughter had been asleep not 30 yards from where Dot had been murdered. He felt sure he would have been awoken by any scream. The school's cook, Mrs Geary, and the housemaid, Jean Lamb, hadn't heard anything either. Police also interviewed Francis Walker, the nine-year-old newspaper boy who'd first found Dot's accessories on the ground and alerted the handyman and groundskeeper, Len Roberts, who'd then made the horrific discovery of her body. But police didn't interview Eileen Crockett that day because she was still out enjoying her Sunday off. Eileen wouldn't know that Dot was dead until she returned that evening. Len Roberts also wasn't questioned immediately. He was to say that around 9.30 that morning, while Detective Sergeant Olford was talking to Reverend Futrell in the study, he'd asked if police needed to speak with him. Not told yes, he joined Mrs Geary and Jean in the kitchen. The cook had made some eggs, but everyone was too upset to eat, so they just had a little tea. Len, his chores done, had the rest of the day off, and he'd go to play tennis. That night, as arranged, Tom Donegan went to Newcastle Police Station. He told officers that he and Dot had had a good relationship. They'd never quarrelled. He'd wanted to marry her when his finances allowed. Tom also said that a man who worked at the school, his name was Len, had asked her out. She'd said no. Perhaps a little jealous, Tom had asked if she'd ever think of going out with Len. Dot had scoffed and said, not likely. If she did, she knew what she'd get. Detectives asked Tom if he knew this Len. He said he didn't. Then they took him to a room and pointed out a man. This was Leonard William Roberts, they said, Broughton's handyman and gardener. At 7.30, while Tom was being interviewed, Detective Sergeant Archibald Patterson of Newcastle Police had gone to Broughton School to see Len Roberts. He'd asked him to come to the station, and Len had readily agreed. Interviewed, Len explained his movements last night. He'd gone to a wedding party dance in Merriweather with a girl named Joan Hill, who he took out every now and then. Leonard said goodbye to Joan at her house at 12.20am and taken a couple of trams back to the school, arriving around 12.50. Entering Broughton via the Church Street gate, Len had gone up the path, but he said he had not seen Dorothy or anyone else and he hadn't seen any ladies' accessories on the grass. Len said he'd been in his bed in his room at the back of the house about five minutes later. Detective Sergeant Patterson asked Len to explain how he'd found Dot. The officer said that Len replied, quote, I was up at 6am and worked about the place. A paperboy came in and told me that a lady's handbag lay on the path. I went down the path and saw the body. The face was covered with some clothing. I had a look and either walked or ran back to the school. Len there saw Mrs. Futrell and Jean, who'd just come out, having seen from the upstairs window what they feared was a body. The Reverend's wife had asked, What is down there? According to Detective Sergeant Patterson, Len had replied, It must be Dot. Mrs. Futrell ordered, Go down and have a look. Len told the sergeant, I went down and had another look at the body. I came back and said to Mrs. Futrell, It is Dot, all right. She is naked. Give me a sheet to cover the body. Len continued, I covered the body and remained there until the police and doctor arrived. But was that exactly what Len had said? Mrs. Futrell had said that he'd waited with her in the hall after covering the body. Perhaps memories were a little faulty, given the stress and horror of that Sunday morning. 
Maybe recollection problems extended to Detective Sergeant Patterson too when he tried to recall exactly what Leonard told him. Detectives brought Tom Donegan into the room and asked Len if he knew him. Len said no. The detectives then got Tom to repeat what he said Dot had told him about a man named Len asking her out. Len denied this. He'd never asked Dot to go out with him. Tom was questioned for three hours and then he was allowed to leave. Len was also free to go. That evening, Detective Sergeant Stanley McCarthy arrived from the Sydney CIB, sent up to take charge of the investigation. Detective Sergeant McCarthy was a Newcastle native who, just after the turn of the century, as an 11-year-old boy, had tried to stow away on a German ship and been discovered just before it set sail. Stanley had grown up to be a big unit who got bigger with weightlifting and he competed in amateur boxing and wrestling matches. At 21, Stanley McCarthy became a Newcastle uniformed copper. Three years later, in his first week as a plainclothes constable, he caught his first murderer, and he'd done it single-handed. Since then, he'd had a fine career, posted to the Sydney CIB in 1928 and working numerous high-profile cases, receiving commendations for investigations into the Canberra mail robbery of 1932 and the big Angus and Coote jewel robbery in 1934. But he'd also made his name as a homicide investigator, working on high-profile cases, including the Jack Hewitt and Ruby Green murder investigations in Dubbo in 1936, which we heard about in the Tracker Riley episode. By spring of 1937, Detective Sergeant McCarthy was on the verge of being promoted to Detective Inspector. Now, he was back on home turf in Newcastle, where he'd started his career, and he was ready to solve another murder. Back in the day, that first killer that Constable McCarthy had collared had seen his death sentence commuted. But now, when Detective Sergeant McCarthy brought the man responsible for Dot Everett's murder to justice, the sex maniac would surely swing from the gallows at Long Bay Jail. Newcastle Police and Sydney's Detective Sergeant McCarthy weren't the only men working on the murder that Sunday. Journalists were busy tapping their sources. And when Monday dawned, Dot's death was front-page news all across Australia. The headlines screamed, bloody murder. The Newcastle Sun was representative. Quote, Sex maniac is still at large. Help of public sought to find who strangled woman. Atrocious crime, say police. The accompanying articles contained what the police knew about Dorothy's murder and her last movements. They told of the newsboy's discovery and of Len Roberts finding the body. Reports said that Dorothy had been strangled, bitten and outraged, but for decency's sake, they didn't go into specifics. Police had already said that Tom Donegan was in the clear. Journalists reported that so far, there were no witnesses and no suspects. Sydney's Daily Telegraph said the murderer chose the perfect crime scene and then appeared to have made the perfect getaway, leaving no trace of himself. The paper said police favoured the theory that Dot's murderer had been someone she already knew and they outlined the reasons for this belief. Yet they were still also considering the possibility that she'd been stalked by a stranger. While those impressions in the grass pointed to Dot sitting with someone, they could have also been made by students or even by a couple who'd wandered into the grounds and sat to have a cigarette. That Dot's accessories had been found close by may have just been a coincidence. 
The previous attack on Dot was also widely reported. So it was possible this same creep had returned to carry out his dreadful purpose. The Newcastle Sun said veteran police declared that this crime was, quote, one of the most fiendish and brutal in their long experience. It might only be solved with the public's help. Quote, the murderer, they say, is a dangerous criminal, and while he is still at large, the district will be menaced. The Sun printed a map of Dot's most likely route home. As the Sydney Morning Herald noted, quote, In the area through which this route lies, there is usually considerable pedestrian traffic till after midnight, and the police feel sure that, despite the extensive cooperation they have received from the public, there must still be a number of people who have not come forward, who perhaps only casually noticed Miss Everett on her walk to the school. Police asked anyone who'd seen a woman walking alone or with a man in that vicinity late on Saturday night to come forward. In fact, anyone who'd had anything to do with Dot in the past three to four weeks should make contact if they had any information. Police needed to know as much as they could about this young woman who'd kept to herself. To help jog memories, they provided a description. Quote, this girl is described as having been fairly good-looking, with light brown bobbed hair. She was of medium build, about 5 feet 4 inches tall, and weighed 8 stone 3 pounds. Articles described what she'd been wearing. But the newspapers didn't run a photo of Dot that might help jog memories in this crucial early stage of the investigation. Dot being a quiet person had apparently extended to her being camera shy. But by Sunday... Dot's family had received the terrible news. Surely, between them and Tom, they had some photos that might be of use. It would soon emerge that two such pictures existed. Why they weren't released in the first few days of the investigation was inexplicable. What was also difficult to understand was why Detective Sergeant McCarthy still had not interviewed Broughton maid Eileen Crockett. If he had, he would have known that when she'd returned home via the Church Street gate at 12.10 on Sunday morning, she'd not seen anyone or anything. She'd sat up for a while with her roommate, Jean Lamb, also in from a night out, though she'd used the back entrance and then they'd both gone to sleep. Like everyone else, Eileen hadn't heard any screams in the night. In the early morning, on her way out of the school, Eileen had noticed a handkerchief on the grass, but nothing else and she certainly had not seen Dot's body. Detective Sergeant McCarthy hadn't interviewed Eileen, and so he didn't know any of this. While he knew she'd been out and had left in the morning, he didn't know any of the specifics. Likely he thought that what Eileen would have to say would be inconsequential, adding nothing to what they already knew. But her information had a role to play. What was also difficult to understand was why the police so far hadn't followed up with Len Roberts' alibi, the woman Joan Hill, who he said he'd been with on Dot's last night alive. These sort of investigative oversights seem to belie the newspaper reports that detectives were working around the clock and leaving no stone unturned, following every angle, sweeping up every possible clue and interviewing everyone who might know anything about the murder of Dot Everett. The first valuable lead came from a woman who'd been on the tram late on Saturday night. She'd actually lived in Taree as a child and she knew Dot by sight. All she could say was that Dot had been alone when she'd gotten into the carriage, which had been fairly full. Dot had gotten off by herself at her stop, 
No one else had left the carriage there. This seemed to rule out that she'd been stalked from the tram. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Police told reporters they wanted to hear from anyone who'd seen any men loitering near the school and from any women or girls who'd been threatened or accosted in the area recently. This was tacit acknowledgement that many such sex crimes went unreported. In the first 48 hours, the police received hundreds of phone calls from the public. At one point, they were averaging one every minute. This made for good newspaper copy, as did uniformed men racing around Newcastle in wireless cars, following up on leads that were flooding in. In the past year, police said there'd been two major sex offences. They'd followed these up. One perp was dead, the other was still in jail. That this was the tip of the iceberg was clear in how many girls and women now came forward. As The Sun reported, quote, A number of attempted sex crimes have been brought to light as a result of the murder. They had not been reported earlier because the victims feared publicity. Victims did, and still do, fear publicity. But Newcastle women in 1937, as is still unfortunately true, also feared being slut-shamed by sceptical police and by society at large. Tragically, one of these women had been Dot Everett. The Sun told readers, Women and girls described men who attacked them and several of these descriptions tallied, suggesting that one man had committed many offences. Had this been Dot's attacker, emboldened because his many crimes had gone unreported by his victims? Mr Tiplady, the former Taree neighbour who'd had Dot to dinner less than a week before she died, told the Newcastle Sun, quote, She told us she was always frightened that she would be attacked on her way home. She said that she often saw men about the locality and that she was terrified. She mentioned a man having accosted her about a fortnight ago, but she did not report the incident to the police as she was not keen on having a fuss made. She did not give very many details. Mr. Tiplady continued. She said it was terribly dark and lonely there, and she was frightened of it. It was almost a premonition. She was so scared that she said she was likely to go back to Taree and never return to Newcastle. She feared she would be attacked again. She was really scared. Yet, despite this, Dot had refused his offer to drive her home. Given her fear... Why hadn't Dot used the slightly longer but far safer, well-lit route along Terrell Street? Other servants at Broughton School told police they repeatedly advised her to do so. But Dot didn't. Why? Wasn't readily explained. Had she refused the offer of a lift home because she knew that Mr Tiplady would drop her at the rear entrance and wait for her to go through the gate? Was Dot's discomfort, or even fear, of using this gate even greater than her concern about the possibility of another attack in the park or on Church Street. Mr Tiplady told the Newcastle Sun that the previous attack by a stranger actually made him more certain that Dot had been killed by someone she already knew. 
This was because Dot had said she was always looking over her shoulder when she used the zigzag steps. So he thought she would have seen anyone following her. Like the police, Mr Tiplady believed she'd been killed by someone who'd lulled her into a false sense of security inside the school grounds. The initial flood of reports about sex offenders was enough for Sydney's son to run the 30th of November headline, Soon No Slayer, Confidence of Police, School Crime Near Solution, Four Suspects. But this claim that detectives were planning to swoop on and sweat four perverts as prelude to arresting one of them for murder was likely floated in the hope it had caused the actual killer to fear he was one of these suspects and, in a panic, flush himself out. The claim that police were on the verge of making an arrest was undermined by details found in other reports. A Daily Telegraph article stated, quote, The unusual nature of the girl's injuries suggests to some of the police that a foreigner from a vessel in port may have committed the murder. This was based on the fact that a reef knot was used by sailors and that overseas degenerates indulged in sexual perversions. Even this article equivocated in the next sentence, quote, while this possibility is not being lost sight of, most of the investigating detectives think a local man was responsible. The newspaper reports were all either or. The murderer was either someone she knew, or a stranger, or a serial stalker. The culprit was either a land-loving local, or a seafaring foreigner. In light of this, it was difficult to believe that an arrest was imminent. Indeed, a roundup of sex offenders turned up nothing, as reported by the Daily Telegraph. Quote, About ten of these were interrogated today, but all were able to explain their movements satisfactorily. With one or two exceptions, they were definitely of a subnormal type, incapable of violence. But these investigations also showed how sceptically police viewed reports of sexual harassment and sexual assault. The Daily Telegraph. For several weeks past, a prowler has been molesting women around Newcastle. His victims did not complain to the police because of fear of publicity, but they have now come forward. A great many of these reports have been discounted after inquiry, but about five have been accepted as genuine. This Daily Telegraph article inadvertently pointed up the problem. It said that women not reporting this prowler was their own fault because they'd feared publicity. But another major reason was right there in the next sentence. Listen to it again. Quote, a great many of the reports have been discounted after inquiry, but about five have been accepted as genuine. Presumably, the majority of women who'd come forward, setting aside their fear of publicity, had done so simply to make hoax reports. Police made no statement about having known about this creep prior to these reports nor did they say they were zeroing in on him for these crimes or as a murder suspect. Instead, detectives were said to be getting a medical report from a Sydney expert on the sort of sexual abnormality indicated by the attack on Dot Everett. What was also reported was that her purse had been ransacked of a few pounds. Her rings and a watch had also been stolen. While this didn't really suggest robbery as a motive, the crime was far too extreme for that, the recovery of this jewellery could be vital. Half of Dot's brassiere was also still missing, despite Broughton having been thoroughly searched and police combing nearby properties, 
including Bishopsgate, the residence of Newcastle's prelate, which was next door to the school. As further evidence of how uncertain the police were, the question was raised, was their manhunt actually for a man? The Sydney Morning Herald on the 1st of December floated the possibility of a femme fatale. Quote, Several men have been eliminated from the police investigation. As a result of the post-mortem examination, the police are unable to disregard the possibility that the crime might have been committed by a woman of unusual strength. The paper wasn't going to outrage readers by being any more explicit. But this angle was being considered by police because of the unusual sexual assault. That was no penetrative sex, and presumed cunnilingus. Had Dot been stalked by a lesbian? Was this the source of her anxiety? The Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, Some associates of the dead woman had remarked that she had shown a much increased nervousness during recent weeks. It is pointed out, however, that the nervousness could hardly have been caused by fear of night walks back to the school, as... If she had chosen, she could have returned by a well-lighted route used by other female employees. The detectives are not overlooking the possibility that there might be some fact not yet in their possession to account for her increased tendency to worry. Over the next week, newspaper reports seesawed. One day, The Sun said that after interviewing 200 people, the police were scarcely any further ahead and that the promise of an arrest by the coming weekend had evaporated. Yet, the next day, the Daily Telegraph claimed police had discovered more clues and were going to set a cunning trap for the killer. The next day, it was back to despair, with the Labor Daily reporting police were making little headway, which actually seemed backed up by the state government offering a £200 reward. That same day, there was a noted defeat in a supposedly determined and defiant detective telling the Newcastle Morning Herald that the maniac could run, but he couldn't hide. The paper paraphrased him this way. The search for the murderer would go on with unremitting vigour for weeks, if necessary, months, until the crime was solved. And even if they didn't succeed then, they'd persist for however long it took. The Herald continued, quote, just as a small section of the staff of the Criminal Investigation Bureau in Sydney was almost constantly employed in an effort to clear up the Aubrey Pyjama Girl murder, so would a watch be kept for the man responsible for Dorothy Everett's death. The department regarded the Newcastle crime as possibly more important than that committed at Aubrey because of its peculiar character and its reaction on the public. It was essential that a man of a type who could commit such an offence should be brought to book. The visiting sailor as vicious sex maniac was the focus for a few days. Police scoured shipping lists and made inquiries on vessels that had been in port since Saturday. Vessels that had left were being checked at their next ports of call by police in communication with Newcastle detectives. Ships at sea were called by radio their captains asked to check the movements of crew while they'd been in Newcastle. Again, this line of inquiry was presented in the press as a beacon of hope for a breakthrough. And again, it went nowhere. Things got more vague and yet more confident on Sunday the 5th of December, a week after Dot had been found dead. The Sun told readers, quote, As a result of a new lead, the case is reported to be moving towards a climax. Police officials say that vital links are still required to complete the chain. This will take time, and the big move which is being planned may not take place until towards the end of next week. 
detectives' hopes, which have been raised and dashed many times, have never been higher. Truth ran all the theories, including that the killer was a woman. In terms of details about the crime, the sensational tabloid was prepared to go where other newspapers feared to tread. Quote, There were teeth marks on her body, suggesting a saddest of most pronounced character. Almost beyond doubt, one set of marks had been inflicted after death. The motive was not of the type common to most previous Australian sex crimes. Her attacker apparently aimed to treat her in a most abnormal manner. By the following Wednesday, the 8th of December, the Sun was back to saying that detectives were, quote, faced now with an almost hopeless task. The hope in their hopelessness was identifying the teeth marks on Dot's body. To this end, police had sought the help of an expert. The Sun reported, quote, A dentist at Sydney University has stated that he believes he would be able to say how many teeth the killer had and if they were broken teeth. The dentist has already told a detective he is willing to undertake the task. If he succeeds, the problems of the police would be to a degree simplified. Simplified was a huge simplification. Bite mark analysis, as it would later be called, wasn't then even in its infancy. And adding to the degree of difficulty, Dot had been buried for over a week. Any analysis would be done from photographs and complemented by Dr. Collier's observations. Yet the very next day, the Daily Telegraph reported, under the headline, Teeth Marks, Not Clue to Murderer, that detectives had little hope this avenue of inquiry would identify the killer. Quote, The woman was bitten in two places, but in neither case were any individual teeth marks left. This claim, made on the 9th of December, had to be curious to anyone following the case closely. Dot had been bitten after death and marks had been left, but now police were saying these weren't the impressions of individual teeth. How is that possible? Bite into anything and that's what you saw. Teeth marks. Truth's next issue, on sale in the middle of the second week of December, had an exclusive. Two pictures of Dorothy Everett on the front page. One photo showed her smiling in a white dress by a fence in a backyard. The other had her in a coat and headband sitting on a beach. Both were good images and Dot had a distinctive look. Truce claims that it had them exclusively suggested they'd been leaked. The paper chastised the cops, quote, The time seems to have arrived when photographs of Miss Everett taken during her life and known to be in police possession should be published as widely as possible. Over the next two days, these same photographs appeared in all the major newspapers. Truth had forced the police's hand. But it had now been nearly two weeks since Dot's murder. Why the delay? Like I said, it's inexplicable. In the same issue as the photo exclusive, Truth milked the female killer idea. The headline? New theory in Newcastle horror. Woman killer? All clues failing. Police turn in fresh direction. Bizarre facts probed. The line went that the facts, that was, Dorothy hadn't been raped, quote, fit the theory that another woman with probably unusual strength found it imperative to murder the housemaid so that the identification of the attacker and disclosure of her abnormalities would be impossible. That the stockings hadn't been torn off, Truth reckoned, suggested a woman had removed them, quote, with the ease of long practice. That Dot had been so worried about unknown concerns also played into this theory. 
had she refused to use the safer Terrell Street entrance because she was trying to avoid someone. It was pretty weak source, but Truth was on far firmer ground when it told readers, quote, Now, with the third week of the investigation upon them, the police are obviously and almost hopelessly up against a brick wall. The following Friday, the 17th of December, the inquest into Dot's death began in the Newcastle Coroner's Court with the District Coroner Mr A.G. Chiplin assisted by Detective Sergeant Stanley McCarthy of Sydney CIB. The proceedings had commenced early. After all, police were still making their inquiries in order to accommodate three witnesses who were set to leave the district. Margaret Atkinson, the woman who'd known Dot in Taree, told the coroner of seeing the deceased get on and off the tram alone on Saturday night. Dot, she said, had left the carriage at around 11.40pm. That meant if she'd gone directly to Broughton, she would have entered the school grounds at around 1150 Reverend Futrell had been transferred to Ballarat long before Dot had been murdered. He, his wife and daughter, were due to leave soon, so they needed to give evidence now. Mrs Futrell told of waking on Sunday morning, of learning that Dot was missing, of ringing her sister Elsie, of seeing something on the grounds from the upstairs window as the paper boy was coming up towards the house. Of that shape, Mrs Futrell said, quote, I looked at it, and the more I looked, the more it looked like a figure. She'd called the maid Jean Lamb, who'd seen it too, and they'd gone to find Len Roberts, the handyman and gardener. When they stepped out of the front door downstairs, he was coming up around the side of the house. Mrs Futrell told the court she'd said, Len, what is that over there? Go and see it once. Len, she said, hadn't spoken, but just followed her command and gone down the grounds. Mrs Futrell recalled, quote, He did not touch anything but came straight back, he was away only a few seconds. When Len returned, she said, he'd said words to the effect of, It's Dot. She's dead. She's naked. Can you get me a sheet as there are a number of boys on the veranda? Mrs Futrell was quite sure that Len had not bent down to the body. She could swear it. Mrs Futrell told the court she'd only been able to see the body clearly from the top floor. From out the front of the house, it was only visible as an outline. She told the court that Dot had been a remarkably quiet girl. Even so, she said, Len did know her because he saw her every day in the course of his duties and they had their meals together with the rest of the staff. Mrs Futrell explained what Len's regular duties were on a Sunday. He got a bit of a sleep in, able to start work at 6.30 rather than 5.30. His first job was sweeping out the four classrooms. Then he was to sweep the veranda and then the path. Mrs Futrell wasn't sure if Len had done the latter duties when she and Jean had come to him. Mrs Futrell said she hadn't seen Len talking to the paperboy. Reverend Futrell told the coroner the little he knew. He and his wife had been in bed with the lights out by Saturday 10pm. They hadn't heard any screams overnight. Reverend Futrell was initially a little blurry on other details, saying there were 15 boarders on the premises that evening. He'd later correct this to say there were 18 boys. Reverend Futrell also initially told the inquest he wasn't sure which master had been in charge. But later he'd say that Mr Sherlock was the teacher who lived in the main house and that he'd been there on Sunday morning. In any case, Reverend Futrell testified that all the boys would have been in bed by 830 
On Sunday morning, the Reverend had gone down the front steps and along the northern front of the house to access the basement chapel. He'd been carrying two communion cruets and wearing a long cassock, so he'd been watching his step and not looking down the grounds. He had not seen Dot's accessories and he hadn't seen her body. The Reverend conducted the service from 7.45 and there'd been seven boys and three masters present, Mr Sherlock and Messieurs Wakeford and Terry, who lived in a detached building. Mr Wakeford and Mr Terry usually came to chapel from the rear of the building, while Mr Sherlock used the same route that the Reverend had. The Reverend said he'd first known that Dot was missing when he'd been told upon getting up, but he didn't know she was dead until 815 after he'd finished Sunday service. Reverend Futrell told the court there were two or three boys at the school who were 15 years old. For the Crown, Detective Inspector McCarthy asked, quote, Have you ever noticed any abnormal sexual tendencies in them? The Reverend replied, None whatever. Whether he would have noticed is debatable, and this is also suggested by his answer about whether he'd noticed anything peculiar about Dot in the seven weeks that she'd worked there. Quote, No, apart from paying her wages to her, I saw very little of her. Reverend and Mrs. Futry were due to go to Ballarat at New Year and received permission from the coroner to absent themselves from further sittings. Had they been able to be recalled, things might have been very different. The coroner, Mr. Chiplin, adjourned the inquest until the 4th of January. In the week that followed, Newcastle and Taree rang with the sound of Christmas carols. A week after that, revellers sang Old Lang Syne to see out 1937 and welcome 1938. The staff of Broughton School didn't have a lot to celebrate. Dot's murder had been horrific and had unnerved everyone. Adding to their troubles, at a time when unemployment was still high, Reverend Futrell had given everyone notice. His replacement would hire his own staff. Tough as this was for them, it was surely an even more bitter festive season for the Everett family. James and Isabella had lost their eldest child in unimaginable circumstances. Dot's seven siblings had been deprived of their sister. The Everett family could take no consolation from the police's fruitless investigations. After one month, detectives appeared no closer to catching the killer. Yet, as Australians saw in the new year, behind the scenes, Detective Sergeant McCarthy and Detective Sergeant Alford were closing a net around a suspect, based on information from a witness whose story would shock the country. This woman whose identity would be suppressed with the codename Miss X, had worked as a maid at Broughton School. There, she said she'd been harassed by a perverted co-worker. She knew he'd done horrible things. He'd threatened to strangle her and once said he knew how to get away with murder. When Miss X had heard how Dorothy Everett had been killed, she was sure she knew who'd done it. The handyman, Len Roberts. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part two of The Vampire Murder. Part three will be available on regular podcast platforms soon. But if you'd like to hear the whole story now, all five parts are available to supporters of Forgotten Australia as a thank you for helping me make this podcast. And the link is in your show notes. 
Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.